What if I told you that the good life you lead and the greatest dreams you could ever have were like the mere flickering of a candle when compared to the eclipsing magnitude of the sun? You see, all that you are will ever be began with the beat and the rhythm of truth, purpose, and abundant life reaching far beyond the good you can achieve to the great you can only receive from a loving heavenly father and God who desires to bless you in every facet of your life so tell me tell me why would you settle for less when you can have the keys to God's best so listen closely and hear his word as it speaks of the passion for his children for which his heart beats. Welcome to Forest Hill Church, one church soon to be five campuses. It's great having all of you here today, the online community. If you weren't here last week, want to make sure you know our great news, and that is we have closed on our 10.2 acres in Waxhaw. It is a wonderful piece of property in the center of new Waxhaw. We have some pictures, the overhead view of that place right in the middle of the Curitan Town Center uh, gives us great visibility, as you can see from the road, and a wonderful place that we can build our new facility and begin our worship there very, very soon. So would all of you give glory to God for that? We do praise him again for his goodness to us. Thank Thank you. And also, uh, for those of you who may want to give to the So That campaign, we're at almost $8.7 million of an $8 million campaign. Anything that we get over that will continue our campus expansion in the years to come. So thank you so much for your faithfulness and support. And again, if any of you'd like to join that campaign, we'd love to have you do that at any point in our years to come as we continue to try to take the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. So let's move into this understanding of heartbeat that we're going to look at today. Uh, Heartbeats is a series that's trying very hard to deal with the whole understanding of if I had 35 minutes with you on any subject that you would like to ask me about, here's what I'd say. We've looked at marriage and parenting over the last several weeks, loneliness, and last week, disappointment, which many of you have responded and said, thank you for that message. I appreciate your kindness to me. Today, the issue of shame, the issue of shame. Uh, it's something that many, many people are struggling with, that inward embarrassment of something that you've done or something you feel about yourself that you just can't get rid of. So let's spend these next 35 minutes looking at the subject of shame and how we can begin to understand it. Let's begin by looking at the source of shame, where it all came from. It comes from the scripture our insights out of reverence for the reading of the scripture. If you're now please able, would you stand? In understanding the subject of shame, we first of all turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. We've looked at these verses dealing with marriage and parenting. Here it is again, one of the most important verses in all the Bible, quoted by Jesus, by Paul, and other places. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
That is key. In original intent, in the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, there was no shame at all that existed. Absolutely none. No feelings of inferiority, no feelings of defectiveness, no feelings of moral inadequacy, no hopeless hurt inside. Adam and Eve in a perfect, lived in a perfect relationship with God and with one another where there was absolutely no shame. Shame was not a part of God's original intent. Then we move to Genesis 3 where the fall occurred, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God and invited sin into the world, and now sin permeates every part of God's original once perfect creation, and inwardly there's no longer union life in our souls. There's no longer peace within us. There are all kinds of fears that come. In fact, fear is the first negative emotion that's mentioned in the Bible. The second one has to do with shame in Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Adam and Eve, in knowing their sin, their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. And now knowing they were naked, they feel shame. And so they put together loincloths over their private parts to hide their what, folks? Their shame. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Shame. There's actually a good part of shame in our fallen condition. Uh, the good part of shame is that we feel embarrassment, especially as we look into the mirror of Jesus. You see, Jesus is God in human flesh, and in his perfect humanity, along with his perfect godliness, he reflects to us what God intended humanity to be. So as we look in the mirror of Jesus and see our own flaws and inadequacies, it should produce a good kind of shame that drives us to the cross where we receive forgiveness. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it at the end of the message. But the bad part of shame is we reach the point where we no longer feel any shame about any of our sins. And Jeremiah, the great prophet in the Old Testament, talks about the Israelites having reached a point in their culture where he says they are a people who have forgotten how to blush. A people who have forgotten how to blush. That's the kind of feelings I have oftentimes as I look at the American culture. There's no shame at all in what we feel or do. We are a people who have forgotten how to blush. And of course, a nation corporately is only made up of individuals. And when individuals forget how to blush, when individuals have no shame whatsoever, they can't be driven to the cross, they can't change, and that ultimately causes a culture to spiral downward in a moral way to an ultimate abyss. So we want to look today at an understanding of shame that will drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ. First of all, let's look at the shapes of shame, and there are Five of them here, they're all interconnected in a way, but there are nuances of difference that I think we need to cover. The first shape of shame is situational shame. Um, that, that's like when you're with a group of people and you trip over your shoelaces and there's embarrassment in your heart as you look clumsy and stupid in their eyes. I remember when I was in the third grade at our elementary school, every year at Halloween time, they would allow the kids to dress up in their Halloween outfits and wear them to school. And it was something all the kids looked forward to. But for some reason, one year they canceled it. The only problem was I didn't get the message. I don't know if I was sick the day it was a 
announced or the letter didn't come in the mail or what happened. I didn't get the announcement. So that day, in excitement, I dressed up in my Halloween trick-or-treat costume and I dressed up as Zorro, the great television slash movie character with his sword who could fight anybody, make the sign of the Z whenever he would win. Zorro was my hero. So I show up at school that day dressed up as Zorro, black cap, black mask, black cape, black outfit, only to discover I was the only kid in the school who had dressed up in his Halloween outfit. You can imagine my embarrassment. I mean, my mom had even made the tiny little mustache right below my nose and above my upper lip. And I had to go into the restroom and wash all that off, tuck the black cape into my pants, uh, try to look as normal as I possibly could throughout the day. But throughout that day, and really for the next weeks, and actually even today when I think about it, my face flushes in shame. I, I have a sense of embarrassment. I Blush. I think it was Mark Twain who said, human beings are the only animals who blush, and we need to. <laughs> With situational shame, we sometimes need to. We just do something dumb, and we feel embarrassment for it. But situational shame is different than cosmetic shame, which is the second kind of shame. What is that? That is when the culture defines beauty in a certain way. It's all cosmetic. It's all outward. And, and that view of beauty drives people to believe they're someone that they're not. It drives them to spend countless millions of dollars on plastic surgery. It drives some women to anorexia and bulimia because their picture of beauty is thinness and they keep striving for that, thinking wrongly, of course. They're obese even though the mirror, the mirror shows them that they're becoming increasingly thinner. A cosmetic shame drives people in their jobs to work harder and harder so they can have bigger houses and more and more materialism. Uh, Marilyn and I were recently on a vacation at, at a friend's condo who loaned it there to us for a week. And while we were there, a pipe broke and the man came in. And as he was fixing the pipe, he said, you know, it's interesting about this vacation area. The bigger the homes, the less they're used. Isn't that fascinating? The bigger the homes, the less they're used. It's like people who have fallen prey to cosmetic shame. If they don't think, they keep moving up the ladder and can compare themselves to other people and be better than them, they just can't exist. And meanwhile, people who are lower on the ladder and just can't get up to that place of supposed acceptance, they feel continually shamed and drive themselves in a performance-based mentality to be successful. That's outward comparisons that lead to self-loathing, that lead to shame. Thirdly, there's inherited shame. It's what a major culture believes is acceptable. Uh, many cultures in the world, not the American culture, which is more rooted in individualism than in the corporate mindset, in many cultures there is a shame and honor base, which drives the entire culture. So oftentimes, uh, in Islamic cultures, for example, if you have a child who might convert from Islam to Christianity, the parents might kill the child. 
Why? Because the child has wrecked their understanding of honor and shame in their culture. The child has shamed the father, so the father must kill the child for doing so. Now, that's an extreme example, but cultures can define what's right and what's wrong, and when people don't live up to that, they feel shame. Fourthly, there's inferiority shame. That's the feelings of inadequacy. Um, It's the failure people feel when they lose a job or when their marriage fails. Um, It's the kind of failure I think Jesus must have felt when people were trying to recognize who he was. And some people would say, isn't that Jesus from Nazareth? Then the question would be asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And now that was not asked nicely. You know, can anything good come out of that nice little town called Nazareth? No, it was a question of scorn. It was a shame-based question because Nazareth was considered at the bottom of proper cities in the Israelite culture. So the question really was asked like this, can anything come good out of Nazareth? It's impossible. That is the armpit of all other cities here in this nation. So Jesus felt scorn simply because of his societal city from which he came. And fifth and finally, there's moral shame. And this is the one that produces the most shame in people's lives today. Uh, It is the feelings of inadequacy. Uh, It is the feeling that Joseph and Mary and and probably Jesus himself felt when people would whisper behind the scenes, she got pregnant out of wedlock. You know, the moral code of that day was no sex out of wedlock. And when she got pregnant and wasn't married to Joseph, there were whispers that most certainly didn't last just for a few years, but probably decades. When people asked the question, isn't that Jesus, Joseph's son? They weren't just inquiring about Jesus as a man. There was underneath it that scorn of, isn't he illegitimate? How dare he claim to be God himself? So that moral code that underwrites a society oftentimes causes shame. Many of you were forced to read in middle school or high school the book, The Scarlet A. Uh, It's the book of Esther Prim, who committed adultery, uh, had sex outside of marriage. and, And because of that, the community discovered it and forced her to wear a red A on her dress. Therefore, every place she went in the community, she was identified by her adultery. She became the adulterer, and the A on her dress symbolized how she had failed the moral code of the society, and therefore, she should be ashamed. It was a shame-based reality. But the truth is, many people today in our culture have at least unseen letters on their hearts that many of you think identify who you are. Uh, Some of you might have an A because you've committed adultery and you feel that defines you and you feel ashamed. Others of you have a big D, divorced or divorcee, and you identify with the fact you failed in your marriage. Other people have C, crazy. People have called you crazy and you think that's who you really are. Other people have B for bankrupt. You've failed in business and you've gone bankrupt and you think that now identifies who you really are. Some of you have a BP, two letters, bad parent. 
Your children have wandered away from God, and you feel terrible about all of their wandering. Uh, You have an F for some of you for fired. Uh, You didn't live up to your boss's expectations, or something happened in your job, and you were fired. You see, your identity is wrapped up in your shame. Like Esther Prim, she's an adulterer. Now your identity is wrapped up in how you have failed. Bottom line is you see God and his character as kind of a probation officer. When you do well, he leaves you alone. But if you should ever mess up, he's going to come after you. And the tool he's going to use is pointing his eternal celestial bony finger at you and making you feel shame. So take a moment and just think about those places where your cheeks flush and you feel embarrassed by something you've done in your life, probably, mostly, a moral shame. Do you feel those feelings? Have they become alive to you now? Do you know the letter you've put on your chest to define who you are? My word to you today is don't get stuck here. Don't, and have a right view of God, not as a probation officer, not as a police person in the sky who's ready to get you whenever you do something wrong, but see God for who he really is, which leads to the next point. What is the solution for shame? Let me give you several ideas from God's word. First of all, the solution to shame is to go to Gilgal. G-I-L-G-A-L, go to Gilgal. Now, what is Gilgal? Let me give you a brief history of what happened before the Israelites encamped at Gilgal. When Moses had led the Israelites from the captivity of Egypt, they still had very much a slave mentality. They viewed God as a probation officer, and they had been punished in the captivity. They never saw themselves as free. Even when God gave them the Ten Commandments and the law at Mount Sinai, they still had that slave mentality. They marched from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea at the foot of the promised land. They sent out 12 spies. Ten of them, though, came back seeing God as a probation officer, that God wasn't big enough to overcome the giants in the land. Two, Joshua and uh, Caleb said, no, our God's bigger than those problems in the land. Let's move forward. But the ten overcame the two who overcame the three million, and the people became afraid in, in unbelief. And God said, in Popeye theology, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. I'm not going to deal with these people who have such a slave mentality. So what did God do? He said, you're going to have to spend 40 years in the wilderness, one year after another, just lapping the wilderness until this generation of unbelievers dies out, and I can raise up a new generation who will believe what I tell them, who will have great faith. So that generation dies out, Moses dies, Joshua takes over and takes the people into the promised land. But before he does so, several things happen. As God divided the Red Sea to move the Israelites from Egypt into Sinai region, so God dries up the Jordan River, separating them in Kadesh Barnea into the promised land. And when he dries up the Jordan, they take 12 stones out of the Jordan, and they cross it, and they build an altar that's basically a circle. The stones are to remind them of a second chance of God's faithfulness, drying up not only the Red Sea, but also drying up the Jordan River. And then God demands all the, pe- the men to be circumcised. Now, what's circumcision? 
God commanded Abraham that his son and all males thereafter be circumcised. It was an outward sign of an inward covenant that God gave to all of the Jews. And it was a command. It was the special remembrance that God's promise is true. God would be faithful. God would deliver them. God would always help them, whatever obstacle they would face. So they had the 12 stones in a circle. They had the circumcision among all the males then done. And the third thing that God does, he takes them to a place called Gilgal. And in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal, To this day. Now, why is all of this important? Well, first of all, the word Gilgal means circle. It's almost like God was saying to the Israelites as they had these 12 stones taken from the middle of the Jordan River, encircled with each other, that I am now the God who who comes to you and I'm going to give you another chance. Let's circle around this problem of unbelief again. And every time you look at these stones, remember my faithfulness to you. And then with circumcision, remember this outward sign of my inward reality that I will be faithful to you. And then also the word roll away here is galal, much like Gilgal. It rhymes with Gilgal, and it means roll away. So every time you think about circumcision, remember, I rolled away all of your past. I cut it away. It's all gone. And now I'm going to give you, at this place called Gilgal, a new chance, a new start, a new way of living. In fact, in the New Testament, we see this understanding of circumcision at Gilgal repeated. Colossians 2, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Don't you see, folks, that what God does in Christ is a new kind of circumcision, not literal outward, but God cuts away all the shame of the foreskin of our heart. He cuts it away and makes us into new people. Baptism is the evidence of it. We go under the water, dying to that old self, all of those old places of shame, and we come out of the water, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. So the moment you start thinking about your shame, you go to Gilgal and believe that there God has rolled away all of your shame and guilt, and he gives you a new start, a second chance, a fifth chance, a hundredth chance, because that's the God we believe in, in Jesus Christ. His grace is stronger than our sin. Then secondly, look at the woman in Luke, the seventh chapter. We don't know her name. All we know is she was a woman of great sin. Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house, and there, as was the custom, they should have washed his feet. They didn't even wash his feet. This woman is so overcome with the forgiveness that she had received in Jesus, she comes up to Jesus and she starts washing his feet with her hair. Crying and weeping, she lets her hair down, which was usually the symbol of a prostitute in that day, but she was so in love with Jesus, she washes his feet with her hair, breaks open an alabaster box that was rich with perfume and washes his feet with her hair. The Pharisees object to it and say, this shouldn't be done. And Jesus' answer to them is Luke 7, verse 47, therefore I tell you, 
Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Take your shame to Jesus. Weep over it, cry over it, wash his feet with it, but say to him, Lord, I give it to you, my shame. And the more you know how you've broken Jesus' heart, the greater his forgiveness is. Your understanding of forgiveness in your heart is directly in proportion to how great you know your sin is. This woman knew she was a great sinner. She received great forgiveness. The woman is an evidence of how Jesus' grace is stronger than our sin. Also, thirdly, look at the prodigal son and the prodigal father in Luke, the 15th chapter. Many of you know the story. Uh, the young son wanted to rebel against the dad. He demanded his rights and his inheritance. He takes it, runs away from his dad. And in that culture, in a shame, honor-based culture, that dad could not have been more shamed. The boy goes away, spends his entire inheritance, ends up in a pigsty as a fine Jewish boy in a pigsty. Can you imagine? He finally awakens when no one gives him anything. Uh, for those of you who are caught in the difficulty of enabling people to sin, please read that text in Luke 15 where no one gave this boy anything. And it was only when he reached the end of his rope that he awakened and said, it's time to go home. So as he's going home, he prepares his entire speech to his dad. His dad sees him on the horizon coming home and runs to him, raising up his skirts as an older man sprinting toward his son. And I think everybody in the community saw it too. And they came with the dad to see how his dad would treat the son who should be ashamed having broken the laws of an honor-based culture. So what does the daddy do? Before the son has a chance to confess his sins, the daddy starts kissing him, loving him, with all of his tears flowing down his cheeks. And then... To make it even more startling and amazing, the daddy takes a robe and puts it around the tattered clothes of the son who'd spent everything in a profligacy. Then he gives him the signet ring, which is basically the charge card saying, you can go into town and buy anything you want to. And then he throws a feast for his son. Now, the older brother is really angry. He's, how can you do this to the guy who spent all of your inheritance in such a godless way? And the dad says, don't you know, my boy who was once lost is now found. A boy who was once broken is now healed. Don't you see what the daddy did? The daddy, according to Jesus, loved unconditionally. And that's why I call it the prodigal son and the prodigal father because the word prodigal means lavish. The son was lavish in his sin. The father was lavish in his grace. And he was basically saying to the boy, your identity can't be found in your shame. Your identity must solely be found in my love for you. The old has passed away. The new has come in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 language. The father forgave the son. Wow. And then finally, the invitation to all. It's a parable in Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Jesus talks about a banquet feast, a wedding feast, where the invitations were sent out and no one responded. They had all kinds of excuses. And finally, the giver of the feast says, go into all the highways and byways. Matthew 22, 9. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. <laughs> now, in Jesus' culture, the Jews thought they were the unique chosen of God that he didn't love Gentiles. And here's Jesus saying, this love, this banquet feast of love is not just for you, it's for Gentiles. It's for everyone. And the people who end up coming to the banquet are the poor, the crippled, the lame, the broken, and the hurting. 
Don't you understand, folks? Your shame is not greater than the grace of God. His invitation is to you to come to the wedding feast and receive anew his incredible kindness to you today. Come unto me all who are heavy laden, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. And, and I'll give you rest. All who are heavy laden, come to me. Give me your shame. Let me carry it. You now have a new identity in me. When Peter denied Jesus three times, you must imagine with him his shame, how he ran away. But what's so interesting, when Jesus appeared his first time, he said to his few disciples, I'm going to meet my other disciples in Galilee. Go tell them all and Peter. He especially signaled out Peter. For those of you who feel you've betrayed the Lord, Three times Peter did, and yet Jesus specifically signals him by name to know he was raised from the dead, that his grace was even stronger than Peter's denials. When people walked around in Jesus' culture as lepers, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would come near them. Some of you think today in your shame, you must cry out, unclean as you walk in our culture, and Jesus came to make you clean, a new creation in Christ. Don't you understand, dear friends, what Jesus did on the cross when he dealt with our shame. I call it the great exchange. On that cross, Jesus, God in human flesh, took all of our sins upon him, all of our immoralities and our adulteries and our failures. He took it all upon himself. And then when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, he gives to us forgiveness, grace, and a new identity. Who wouldn't take that particular exchange. Who wouldn't take that barter? Who wouldn't take that trade? He takes all of our shame upon himself and trades it for his new identity, our forgiveness from our sins. We're no longer failures in his sight. We're sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. That's what happened on that cross. That's what we'll be celebrating this week in our service of darkness in all of our campuses. People are going to come to the cross and once again make that great exchange. Exchange our shame for his glory. Our embarrassment for his forgiveness. That's what happened on that cross. And every single one of us needs to know it. Jesus in Luke 23, 34 said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They cast lots for his garments. People didn't realize it. But even on the cross, Jesus was forgiving the very people who had nailed him there. Dear friends, do me this favor. This week, take off the letter of all of your sense of shame and embarrassment. Cut it off, every one of them, and put a new letter on. Put F, F, forgiven, forgiven. That's your new identity, and there's no shame for anyone who follows Jesus. We're now clean, pure, holy, his adopted children in his sight. Get rid of that slave mentality. It kept the Israelites in the wilderness wandering for all of their days. Be free in Jesus. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ set us free, no longer to be under the yoke of slavery. Now we don't see God as a probation officer. We see him as a daddy. And we're his children with his royal blood pulsating in our veins. How could anyone be shamed when they see themselves as the Father in heaven sees us. To Christ be the glory forever and ever.